Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese history and culture through historical Chinese dramas. We're your hosts, Kathy and Karen. Today, we will discuss episode 11 of The Story of Minglan or Zhifou Zhifou, Ying Shi Lu Fei Hong Shou. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter, or else email us at karenandkathy at chasingdramas.com if you have any questions. Normally, we do an episode recap and then discuss the history brought up during the episode, but today the conversation is rather complex, so we'll go through the historical references in the episode recap. Okay, let's get started. At the beginning of the episode, we get a respective scene with each of the three Sheng daughters and their reactions to the events and punishment from the previous episode by their instructor, Kong Mo Mo. First up is Mistress Lin, Lin Xiangyang, mother of Mo Lan. Mo Lan, unsurprisingly, is sniffling and crying about her poor luck. She still doesn't think she did anything wrong, but Kong Mwoma knew exactly the type of person she is. In a completely different tone than before, her mother Lin Xiangyang is now trying to just wait for Kong Mwoma to leave. But wasn't it you that wanted your daughter to take these classes with Kong Mwoma? She originally wasn't supposed to be enrolled for the classes, so to speak. Mualan is now despairing that her father, Sheng Hong, will abandon them. Again, didn't you listen to any of Kong Mo's discipline? When Sheng Hong arrives, he again reinforces that he's, of course, favoring Mualan over the other daughters. So I don't understand, Mualan, what are you not happy about? But I do think Sheng Hong learned from Kong Mo's words because he doesn't stay for too long. He says a few words and leaves. I feel like if it was before, he would have stayed much longer to make sure everything's all right. Over at Grandma Sheng's place, Minglan is in full fangirl mode as she recounts the events of the night to Grandma Sheng. Minglan recognizes that learning the arts from Kong Mo Mo is only secondary. She must learn how to navigate the world from Kong Mo Mo. Minglan was impressed at how easily Kong Mo Mo was able to Sutley remind her father the dangers of favoring a concubine over a wife. Minglan must learn because who knows, her future husband might be like this. Grandma Sheng is impressed that Minglan grasped the importance of these lessons and sighs that her daughter-in-law never learnt these valuable life lessons when she was young. Madame Wang or Wang Danyangzi lived a life of privilege and didn't deign to learn during her youth. Now look at her losing her husband's attention to the mistress literally every single time. Over at Madame Wang or Wang Danyangzi's quarters, Rulan has already gone to bed. Wang Danyangzi is bemoaning her own impulsive actions in the last episode. Her headmaid, Miss Liu, also gently reminds her to be careful with her words in the future. The master, Sheng Hong, wasn't truly upset about Madame Wang's punishment of Lin Xiangyang. He was upset that Wang Danyangzi kept spewing out the words shuzi, or being born from a concubine, which is exactly what he is. Now here's the difference between the two women, Wang Danyangzi and Lin Xiangyang. 
Wang Danyangzi recognizes her mistake and tries to change. Whether she's successful is another story, but Lin Xiangyang shows absolutely no remorse for her actions. For Lin Xiangyang, her and her children's own glory and wealth is way more important than the glory of the Sheng family. Wang Danyangzi, being the wife, does indeed put the Sheng family first. There is another plot line in this episode uh, with Minglan's aunt, Aunt Wei, who is Minglan's mother's sister. Minglan and Aunt Wei are trying to figure out who framed Minglan's mother's maid all those years ago. Minglan comes up with a good plan. She requests Aunt Wei leave the Sheng household immediately. That way, it'll prompt those who are guilty to act. The two suspect that this has to do with Lin Xiangyang, but they don't have any proof. So, Aunt Wei, under the cover of night, sneaks out of the household. And look who follows them out? Why, it is indeed Lin Xiangyang's head maid, Xue Yi. They are now nervous that Minglan might notice something is up, and so they must cover their tracks. Little do they know, this is walking straight into Minglan's trap. With one class done, the Sheng daughters head back to class with scholar Zhuang. As the eldest female member of the family, Grandma Sheng is the one who has to agree to continue the young lady's education. As such, Sheng Hong comes asking for her permission. Sheng Hong's really only asking for Mualan, his uh, favored daughter. Again, his favoritism is on display. Grandma Sheng first puts on a show waving him off, stating that she needs to think about whether the daughters should continue their education. She, of course, knows that going to school is important for the daughters, but she needs to make Lin Xiangyang and Mualan worried and believe that they won't get this opportunity in an effort to make them realize that this is not something that is easily obtained. Back in class, there is a rather spirited discussion. The scholar says he'll choose a random phrase from Kongzi Jiayu, which is the family book of sayings by Confucius, to discuss as a way to prep the young men for hui shi, or the metropolitan exams that are fast approaching. The random phrase he lands on is li di zhang hu, li xian neng hu, shu jia. This is a super old Chinese phrase. Essentially, it means selecting the eldest or the most virtuous. Who is better? In English, the word for this is primogeniture, which means the state of being the firstborn child where the right of succession belongs to the firstborn. This in Chinese history almost always referred to male preference primogeniture. We googled this and was actually surprised to find out that the male preference primogeniture changed to absolute primogeniture only recently regarding the current British royal line of succession. So if we think about it, Princess Charlotte can now inherit. Being female does not exclude her from the line of succession, but before the Succession to the Crown Act of 2013, she would actually be placed behind her younger brother, Prince Louis. So as of right now, and if we go back to the story, for primogeniture in China, 
it's really the firstborn son of the main wife that will be allowed to inherit. The question that is being posed is whether you ought to name your eldest born from your wife, or do you name your most virtuous and capable as heir, even though he may not be the eldest and potentially not born from the wife? Again, we're in a patriarchal society, so we're going to exclude any women from this discussion. This question is quite apt as Changbai notes to current politics, at least in the drama. How? We saw in episode four, I believe, that the current emperor, Song Renzong, does not have any male heirs, so no sons. Therefore, the role of heir or the title of the crown prince and the next emperor of the Song dynasty is currently unknown. From an empire planning perspective, this is problematic as it means the future of the dynasty is not so stable. The emperor must select a man from the royal family, like the clan, and adopt him as a son to be the next heir. In this current drama, there are two options that Gu Tingye names. One is Yan Wang, and the other is Yong Wang. And remember, Wang here is a title, almost equivalent to prince. Both have a certain amount of prestige to be considered for the throne. These are characters introduced for this drama, these two princes, or these two Wang. There's no real-life counterpart for these two people, and the drama surrounding these two Wang does not exist in history. These two princes did exist in the book, though, that this drama is based on, so the original source material. What's the deal, then? From Gu Tingye, we learned that Yong Wang is older than Yan Wang by half a year. Yong Wang has no real talent, but has a lot of sons. And so the family line would not have to worry about being passed on if given to Yong Wang. Yan Wang, on the other hand, is much more capable, but he also doesn't have many sons, potentially threatening the royal bloodline again. This is where the spirited discussion starts between the students and each person's own personal experience shapes their answer. Let's take a moment to recap each person's birth, at least the students who are in attendance. On the men's side, you have Chang Bai. He is the Di Zhangzi of the Sheng family. So he is born of the main wife and also the eldest male. Because of primogeniture, there is no doubt that he will inherit the Sheng family line. Chang Feng, he is the third son of the Sheng family and a Shu Chu, or born of a concubine. He is younger and not born of the main wife and therefore has no real claims to any titles. He can inherit some money, but uh, the title will go to his brother. His only route to fame and fortune right now is through the civil service exams. Next, we have Gu Tingye. He is a second-born Dizi. His family has three sons, each of which are Dizi, or one each from the wives that his father married. No one is a Shu Chu. Even though he is born from a wife, at this point he will not inherit because his elder brother Gu Tingyu will inherit everything. And again, being born from the main wife, or known as Dizi, is in any sense of the word, better than a shu chu or born from a concubine. And lastly, we have Qi Hong. He is the Dizi, but also the only heir to the Duke of Qi. He, of course, will inherit, 
and has no knowledge of the struggles between siblings. On the women's side, as we know, Rulan is the Di Nu, or born from the main wife, while Mulan and Minglan are Shu Nu. Though we know Mulan wants to be better than just that. So Gu Tingye says that Yong Wang should be heir. He is older and has lots of sons, but just isn't talented. This is rebutted by the Sheng family third son, Chang Feng. Remember, he's the son of a concubine. He chimes in that, sure, Yan Wang is younger and only has one son, but he is more capable. Why shouldn't he get a fair chance at the throne? Wu Tingye is rather focused on the fact that even though Yan Wang is younger by just half a year, he's still younger. And unfortunately, in society at that time, there are rules specifically created for this. You always respect the elder. Chang Bai is asked for his opinion. And now we get to go through the gamut of Chinese emperors. So hold on to your horses as we go through everyone. Chang Bai thinks that it should be Di Zhang who becomes heir and brings up the anecdote that Qin Shi Huang, Fei Zhang Zi Fu Su, Li Hu Hai, Qing Chao Er Shi Er Wang. What does that mean? Okay, now we're going to get into the meaty history portion of the episode. What he's saying is that Qin Shi Huang is the famous emperor who unified China in 221 BC. He's the one who has his terracotta warriors uncovered in Xi'an. While you would think that because this guy unified China, his dynasty would endure. But nope, this dynasty lasted only two generations. Qin Shi Huang's eldest son, Fu Su, did not become heir, but was instead the 18th son, Hu Hai, that became the next emperor. There was an internal coup where Hu Hai, the younger son, killed most of his siblings or forced them to commit suicide to pave the way for the throne. Unfortunately, Hu Hai was not fit to be emperor. Just three years after taking the throne, he was forced to commit suicide in 207 BC. And thus, the Qin Dynasty was overthrown. Chang Bai brings up this example to support his belief that Di Zhang should be named heir instead of anyone who is younger. Chang Feng, though, provides a counterexample by bringing up Han Wu Di who was not the eldest born, but became another imposing figure in Chinese history. We've talked about Han Wudi quite a bit in our last podcast drama discussion. He is the seventh emperor during the Han Dynasty, ruling for 53 years between 141 to 87 BC. He's well known for having expanded China's borders and fending off the Xiongnu. He established the Silk Road and named Confucius' teachings as the primary philosophy of China. He was not the firstborn of his father, but rather his eleventh son. However, Gu Tingye pokes a hole in this counter-argument, because while Han Wudi was not the eldest, he was still a dizi, because his father deposed the original empress and named Han Wudi's mother as empress. Thus, he is the natural heir to the throne as dizi, or son to the empress. At this point, Mulan points out that Xi Jinghui Di became emperor because of his status as Di Zhangzi, despite his developmental disabilities, 
leading to the destruction of the empire and turmoil of China lasting several hundreds of years. Jin Huidi is the second emperor of the Western Jin Dynasty and ascended the throne in 290 AD. Unfortunately, due to his developmental disabilities, many nobles and aristocrats attempted to seize power through a regency. The most notable was his wife, Empress Jia Nanfeng. Due to her disastrous efforts, she spurred the War of the Eight Princes, leading to the Wu Hu Zhiluan, or the Five Barbarian Rebellions. The Jing Dynasty lost control of the northern and central territories as a result of her regency, and China was plunged into turmoil. According to Mulan, this could have been avoided if primogeniture was not followed. Mulan also brings up Tang Taizong, who wasn't Dijang, the eldest born, uh, but was still able to create an era of peace when he ascended the throne. Though I personally don't think this is the best example. Tang Taizong is another one of the most famous emperors in Chinese history. This Tang Dynasty emperor ruled from 626 to 649 AD, and while true, he wasn't Di Zhangzi. He killed his two brothers, the crown prince at the time, so Taizi at the time, and his brother, the third prince, and he also forced his father to abdicate the throne so that he could be emperor. This is part of the famous Xuanwu Menzhibian, or Xuanwu Gate Incident. So, uh, I don't think this is entirely the best example, in my opinion, that Mulan could have brought up. Gu Tingye, however, retorts back that the second-born sons also don't have a stellar record. Just look at Sui Yangdi, the second emperor of the Sui dynasty. He was the second-born son to the wife, and due to his extravagant spendings, lost his empire to the Tang dynasty only after a few short years. Okay, for Sui Yangdi, there's been more controversy about him and his legacy, though. Previously, he's been viewed as a villain, but now scholars argue of his importance in Chinese history. He was the one who actually began the imperial civil service exams during his reign. However, the point still stands that he did indeed lose his empire and died pathetically at the hands of his nobles. With all of these anecdotes and examples being shared, the scholar noticed that Qi Hong and Milan hadn't made any comments yet. The scholar pushes Milan to answer, but Milan tries to avoid the question as it touches on politics, which is not something she thinks they should have an opinion on. Changfeng instead shifts the question to be closer to home. What happens if there's a capable Shu Zi, but an average Di Zi? Who would you pick to inherit, and who would you pick to run the family? At this point, Minglan's sisters all push her to answer. Qi Hong tries to help, but is stopped by Gu Tingye. Surprisingly, Gu Tingye jokingly states that Minglan should be more than able to handle herself. If the young duke keeps trying to protect Minglan, her sisters will get more and more irritated, and that does not bode well for Minglan. I find it very interesting that Gu Tingye is able to see this fact so quickly, while Qi Xiaogongye, the young duke, is still like, I need to be the white knight in shining armor and save Minglan. Let's see how Minglan reacts. 
She begins by not answering the question, but asking the same question instead to Qi Hong and Gu Tingye, and how they would respond in their families. Gu Tingye kind of waves off the question. He has two brothers. If his younger brother is more capable than him, he should inherit. Qi Hong points out that this is not the same because all of Gu Tingye's brothers are, of course, legitimate sons or dizi. In the grand scheme of a clan and family success and reputation, having a shuzi inherit would disrupt tradition and bring shame to the family. Well, these two then get into a discussion that fully reflect their own personal upbringing and history. Gu Tingye is on the camp of the shuzi should inherit, but Tihan believes the shuzi should aid and assist the dizi. Gu Tingye is the cynic who believes that it is every man for himself, whereas Qi Hong, with no brothers, is naive enough to believe customs and norms should be followed. After all of this discussion, the scholar asks for Minglan's thoughts. She has been quiet this entire time. She says that by having no definitive response is the definitive response. Being virtuous or not is something that can be faked, but your birth rank is not something that can be forged. If the Shuzi, the son of a concubine, was truly virtuous, he would not aim to destroy his family, clan, for personal gain. On the flip side, if the Dizi knew how to effectively manage his brothers so they do not have these uh, alternative thoughts to usurp a title the family will also remain prosperous. She then ties this back to the earlier discussion about who should inherit. She says men should love their country and serve their emperor. Why not understand each other's place and not be involved in meaningless fights? The crucial line she says is, which means why not be a simple and loyal subject? Why is this line important? Well, because by bickering and splitting into factions, the emperor or the head of the family can't tell who is actually loyal to him. He would become suspicious to those bickering because they would want to usurp his power. Regardless of who inherits, he needs to show loyalty to the current family and the head of the family. Essentially, what she's saying is, why should there be a discussion of who to name as heir? The fight over eldest versus most capable. If everyone knew their place in society, this type of quarrel would not happen. Quite wise words for such a young woman. Both the scholar and Minglan's father, who heard this response from Changbai, are very impressed after hearing such wisdom. And with that, this highly entertaining discussion comes to a close. What do you all think? Learn anything from all of this? Do you have thoughts as to who ought to be heir, or do you agree with Minglan? One could say that her response is her way of not answering to avoid conflict, which is generally her preferred stance. After the class, Qi Hong, who is so smitten by this young woman, stops Minglan in order to ask about why she gave the brushes he gifted her away. Minglan has to point-blank tell him that the better he is to her, the more trouble that causes for her. He needs to stop giving her special treatment, and in such an overt manner as well. 
Look at her body language. She's trying very hard to maintain propriety and not to be seen in a way that could compromise her reputation. Si Hong doesn't mind. He just wants to talk to her. This boy is clearly in love. But again, he is the son of a duke and she is only a shunu. The remainder of the episode shows that it's springtime and the sons of the Sheng family are getting ready for the imperial exams. The exams they're taking right now are Hui Shi, or the Metropolitan Exams. Milan is busy making knee guards for her brothers and an extra one for someone else. Once completed, she sends them over to her brother's rooms where we see that each of their mothers are frantically helping them pack for the exam date. Wang Danyangzi is at least appreciative of Milan's gift for her son because it means that she is thinking of them. Lin Xiaoyang doesn't care for the gift at all and sees it as poor taste. Again, this reflects the difference between the two women. Each of these mothers are hoping that her son will place very highly on the exams and bring honor to the family. In the next episode, we will see these young men head off to take their exams. That's going to be a fun episode and there's going to be a lot to go over. We went through the historical references already, so I do want to dive a little bit deeper into the education of women here. Earlier in the episode, Sheng Hong, the father of the house, requested for his daughters to continue their education with scholar Zhuang. Grandma Sheng delayed her response. When Ming Lan was asked by her grandma about the importance of education, Ming Lan responds that of course education is important. If it wasn't, why do all men strive to be educated? The lack of education is nothing more than a cage with which to lock women into. Grandma Sheng concurs and states that throughout history, women from the most prominent clans and families were all well-educated. Their families knew the importance of education and made sure their daughters all received a decent education starting from a young age. I bring this up because I want to put this conversation in the context of Chinese culture and tradition. China has always been very conservative and a patriarchal society, which restricted women in many ways. As we continue to watch the show, we need to remind ourselves that everything each woman does is to find a good husband. Mulan learns poetry and the fine arts to catch the eye of an eligible bachelor. But guess what? These fine arts are things that the aristocracy enjoys, so she is trying to cater to that taste. Zhulan has it a bit easier because she is a dinu, but she must also remember to remain proper when required. Minglan, the youngest, still must behave accordingly because at the end of the day, she also needs to find a respectable husband. An education would increase their chances to find that decent husband and manage the household. Most women did not receive an education back in the day. If the family had some sort of means, then the priority was always for the sons to go to school, especially during the Song Dynasty. The women just had to learn household chores. Sometimes it seems like we judge Mulan harshly, but she has to survive somehow. I don't agree with her methods, but I will point out that it is true that each woman had to find her way in the world, and Mulan is using whatever methods she can to grasp onto the best for herself. Right, so the judgment we'll make, again, are going to be in the context of this patriarchal society, which, as Karen just mentioned, is very hard on women. 
Now let's finish off with some book differences. During the class, we also see that a barrier was placed to separate the men and women. Right now, there are two quote-unquote outside men in the class, Qi Hong and Gu Tingye. It was improper for outside men to be blatantly in the presence of unmarried women without supervision, and as such, the barrier was erected. It's also, I guess, for story purposes. In the book, the three Sheng daughters weren't even allowed to continue class with scholar Zhuang once Qi Hong arrives to take classes with the men, so this is somewhat of a welcome change. The atmosphere in the book was also much lighter. During the whole scene about answering the question from uh, Kongzi, Milan instead questioned her maids different questions about the young girls in the family to make a point about who's the eldest, who's the most virtuous, leading to much laughter. This scene is actually also the first time Qi Hong meets the girls in the book. Milan didn't know he overheard her, and this is the instance where she gave Qi Hong such a lasting impression. Now the phrase of 不如做个纯臣, or why not just be a loyal subject, was spoken as the punchline by the scholar in the book. His underlying point is that no matter who becomes emperor, you must be loyal to whoever becomes emperor. As the topic is directly related to current events and, of course, to the emperor, the scholar couldn't openly teach this to his students, and thus use this roundabout manner to teach the lesson. And that is it for today. A lot of history in understanding how various emperors came to the throne and how their birth order impacted history. In the next episode, we will see how the gentlemen here, uh, students, perform in their examinations. If you have any comments or questions on the show or what was presented in today's episode, please reach out to us. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.